Good morning. Good morning. Oh, there we go. This rain's got us a little uh, sluggish this morning, but I loved it. Just looking out there, knowing it's rain. Well, it doesn't mean you've got to cut your grass again, but um, I guess it means we'll have grass for a little bit longer before it all burns up. You know, I love that song, just a heart of gratitude, and we have so much to be grateful for. Um, and yet, if we're all honest, well, at least I'll be honest, we sometimes find the things not to be grateful for, and that's what we talk about often. So, uh, but grateful to be here this morning. Hopefully you are as well. So uh, before we get looking at um, our passage this morning, I just got a couple of questions. The first question is this. Does anyone here this morning struggle with quarreling during conflicts? Anyone, anybody? Okay, just, just me and one other person, Okay. The rest of you all can leave, because this has nothing to do with you. All right, thanks for your honesty. The one other person besides myself. Uh, God has something to say to us this morning. The rest of you all can sleep on that part. Question two, does anyone here ever struggle with money? Oh, we got four or five. Okay, now the, other, the rest of you all can go ahead and leave. Oh, no, hold on. Did I just say money? We're going to talk about money in church. Somebody lock the doors. All right, lock them. Keep them all in here while we're here. And we're not taking an extra offering, don't worry, all right? Um, but uh, God has something to say for us this morning from his word about quarreling and about money. And the truth is we've all struggled with both of those things. I don't, I've never met a person who hasn't struggled with quarreling and struggled with money in, in, in different levels. Um, well, let's take some time then to look at what God's word has to say to us. Uh, this morning we are... Um, continuing our study and uh, the first letter to Timothy from Paul, which is entitled Be Strong in Grace. And this morning is part 17, not quarrelsome and not a lover of money. Um, so please, if you do have a co- copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter uh, 3 and verse Uh, We'll be looking specifically at verse 3, but we're going to also read verses 1 through 7 to be in context. Uh, We're going to be looking at just two qualifications in verse 3, but we want to read all seven again. So we're going to do a little something different. We usually don't read that until a little later, but we're going to go ahead here at the beginning of our time this morning, stand up and read 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. Read this with me. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert or may become puffed up with, and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Would you pray with me? Well, Lord, we just heard from you. We, we just heard you speak to us through your word. And Lord, we are so thankful for your word. Lord, now we pray um, as we dive a little deeper into your word that you would do only what you can do, and that is open our hearts, open our minds to your word, to understand it, 
to, to take it in, to receive it joyfully and expectantly, knowing that you want to speak to us, you want to use it to make us more like Jesus. So, Lord, please do that this morning. We are at your mercy to do that, but we trust that you will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just to, you heard me pray. I just always want to remind us, you know, we, we have the great pr- privilege to have God's word. And we just heard from God. Did you, did you know that? We just heard from God. We heard from God just like Moses heard from God. This is God's word. And sometimes we take it for granted. Well, it's just, you know, it's words. No, this is God's word. And I never want to take that for granted. I never want to miss out that when we read God's word, we are hearing from God. And I hope you don't take that for granted either. Well, in our study of 1 Timothy, we, we are currently in this section where we're examining, examining the calling and qualifications of elders. And, and by way of reminder to all of us, maybe, maybe you're new here this morning, maybe you've been coming for the last few weeks or months, and you've heard a lot of this, but God's word clearly teaches this, that the local church is to be led by a group of elders, or, or some people say a plurality of elders, m- more than one. And, and God's word uses the word bishop, elder, and pastor interchangeably. Um, they're synonyms. And if you've been here, you, you understand that we've shown that over and over. That's what the New Testament teaches. They're not different. They're all talking about the same people. All those three words, they really talk about different aspects of that role uh, in the local church. And and as we've examined the qualifications over the last few weeks and and continue to do so, it's important that when we consider those who serve as elders of of the church, we've got to remember this. God is not necessarily looking for gifted men. He's looking for godly men. We've got to remember that. It doesn't mean that we don't want gifted men too, but if you had to choose one over the other, we want to choose godly men. And when examining the qualifications here in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy about godly men, we clearly notice that qualifications, he speaks almost, in his qualification, he speaks almost exclusively of character, of being godly, not gifted. Again, it's not that we don't want gifted men. Every person, is, if you're in Christ, you're given a spiritual gift or maybe more than one, so they will be gifted, but the issue is godly. There's a lot of gifted people that aren't godly. Give me the godly one every time. And that's really what Paul is trying to tell Timothy because he's going to be tempted when he gets somebody that, that, that is gifted and everybody kind of likes and stuff like that and yet they're not that godly but he's going to be tempted maybe to put that person in leadership to shepherd the flock. Well, this, this passage is not, if we've mentioned this over and over again, is not just for elders though. And the qualifications, characteristics, we've mentioned this again and again, they're also for every follower of Jesus Christ. You can find every single, and we have found every one of them in different places in God's word. You can find all these characteristics addressed to everyone, not just elders. It's also important that, um, to, to, be reminded, to be reminded over and over again, this is, the, this is the review part, right? And I need to be reminded of these things. These qualities and characteristics cannot be manufactured by working for them, by, by just working harder or concentrating harder, then, then all these things will, will come into my life. They are instead the work of the Spirit of God working in and through our lives. The, the, the overflow of the Spirit in our lives, or the fruit and evidence that the Spirit is working in our life. Well, two weeks ago, when we last were in 1 Timothy, we examined verse 3 and two of the qualifications that were listed there for elders. The first qualification we examined was not addicted to wine. Your translation may say not a drunkard. 
and it, it means not being controlled by alcohol, not sitting too long, as we mentioned, with alcohol, because alcohol hinders a person's judgment. And we want elders, we want leaders in our church that don't have their judgment hindered because they're going to have to make very important decisions that affect everyone. The second qualification we examined the last time was not pugnacious. That, that was the New American Standard, uh, or violent, um, but gentle. Uh, th- these people can't, th- these men cannot be physically or verbally abusive. As I mentioned last time, I can't say, well, I've got a little conflict with you. Uh, I'll meet you out after church. We'll take care of this like men. An elder can't say that. They can't do that. That's not the kind of men that we want leaving our church. We're also reminded of how not addicted to wine and, and, and pugnacious or violent, but gentle are related. That they, they have, They're related. They, they connect somehow. Violence or being pugnacious is often the outward expression of being drunk. Not always, but often it is. So what we did is we looked at another passage from God's Word in the New Testament that kind of showed us how they're related, and that passage is in Ephesians 4.18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. We clearly here, here, see here that drunkenness leads to dissipation or debauchery, your my translation might say. It's being, it means being reckless, wild, uncontrolled actions. Um, an example of that is violence. That's an uncontrolled action. It's foolishness it's foolish on display instead of wisdom. It's being a fool. Instead of allowing the alcohol to control us, God gives us a, another command here um, to be filled with the Spirit, to let the Spirit control us. And as we learn, this filling of the Spirit is not something that happens one time. We talked about being sealed with the Spirit, all right? We, we talked uh, about the Spirit being a, a pledge to us that God's going to come through on his promise. He's given to us. But this filling is, is, is an over and over and moment by moment thing, allowing the Holy Spirit to control us. A lot of people say, well, you, don't you believe in the second work of the Holy Spirit? And my response is, I do not believe in the second work of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the second and third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth and the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit. That's what I believe in because that's what the Scripture teaches. It's this ongoing relationship with God through the Holy Spirit. The best way to say this, this, this phrase here with all the different, we talked about the grammar here. I'm not going to bore you again with that, that this week. But the best way to say this is keep letting the Holy Spirit fill you all. Keep letting the Holy Spirit fill you all. And we also answer this question, how do we get filled with the Holy Spirit? How do we keep letting him fill us? And then to answer that question, we went to another passage in the New Testament, which is a parallel passage with this Ephesians 5 passage in Colossians 3.16. And we found out that the synonym to being filled with the Spirit was this, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And when you look at those two passages, the only difference is be filled with the Spirit and let the word of Christ richly dwell with you, and the evidence and what flows out of it is the exact same thing. And we saw their parallel passages. So how do we, how we fill with the Spirit? Where well, we let the Word of Christ richly dwell within us. We place ourselves in the flow of the Spirit's Word and allow the Spirit of God to take His Word and transform our lives. That's what it means to be filled with the Spirit. That's how we are filled with the Spirit. And this will lead to a life that's not addicted to wine and it's not violent, it's, but gentle, and this brings glory to God. So 
That's what we covered last week, so let's move on in our passage. And again, as we examine these qualifications, I just want to remind us of the context. I keep reminding every time I'm teaching to remind us it's important to have the context. So we saw in verse 1 the calling of elders, and then verses 2 through 7 the qualifications of elders. Uh, so this is, we're, we're still in this section here, the qualifications of elders. Um, and, and the way we will approach these qualifications this morning is first we're going to define them. We're going to look at what the Word of God says here in 1 Timothy. We're going to define them, all right? And, and then we're going to use other portions of God's Word to expand on them and illustrate them. So we're going to define them first. Then we're going to look at other passages of scriptures to, to Scripture to expand and illustrate these truths that we find, these qualifications. So the first qualification we're going to examine this morning, you see it highlighted there, is not quarrelsome. Not quarrelsome. Or some other translations say peaceable. It, it's an active, serious bickering that may lead to physical combat. So it starts with verbal, but it may lead to physical combat. An elder needs to, to, to help resolve arguments, not start them. Very important. They're supposed to be helping you resolve arguments. This doesn't mean not to get in discussion where we contend for the faith. That's not what this is talking about. This is a person who's always trying to look for an argument. You ever met someone like that? They're always trying to look for an argument. I mean, that color is that color of that carpet is red. What do you think the color is? You say any other color, we're going after it. You, you ever met a person like that? I mean, they're just looking for an argument. I dealt with a guy years ago who was trying to help him. He said he had an anger problem. And so we began to meet and just began to hear his stories, began to witness some of this anger. And he was just always picking fights. And he was always thinking that everybody else was against him. I mean, they're just after me. People are after me. He's like looking over his shoulder for somebody to be after him. And he, but the thing is, I said, hey, the, the common denominator I see in every one of these relationships is you. It's not everybody else. He would just try to start an argument over, and when we'd meet, he was always trying to start an argument. He was just, he was quarrelsome. Well, Paul warns Timothy and Titus to stay away from quarrels because they are ultimately useless. They go nowhere. If somebody's quarrelsome, it never results in what they want. Think about that. If you're purposely quarrelsome, just always picking a fight, always arguing, it never gets what you want. I've never seen that work. It doesn't work. And we see this as Paul uh, later on will write to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.14, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which, is no, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Quarreling ruins people. All right? Titus, one of the other pastoral epistles written to Titus at Crete, he says this, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Unprofitable and worthless. Quarreling is also mentioned multiple times in the Proverbs. Multiple. If you want to go do a word study in Proverbs, you can read a ton of passages of Scripture in Proverbs about those who quarrel. I like this one. Proverbs 20, verse 3. Keeping away from strife is an honor for a man, but any fool or coral. So just, just help me out here a little bit. I, I mean, I'm not real smart. I've been hitting the head a few too many times, so you might mean to help me with this. this, this I'm not sure exactly what this is getting to. But any fool or coral. So it, just help me. So God, through the writer of this proverb, is saying that those who quarrel are, help me, fools. They're fools. 
So if you want to be a fool, just quarrel with people, all right? If you don't, don't, right? But they, 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 they like to quarrel. They're considered fools by God. Elders should not be fools. Can we all agree with that? Who wants an elder, who wants an elder who's a fool here? Now, you might question that on some of us. I understand. Um, but really, no one wants an elder who's a fool. No one wants to follow someone who's a fool. No one wants to be around people who are fools. So all of us, no one wants to be a fool. No one wants to be associated with those who are fools. So let me ask this question. So what is the cause or the source of quarrels? Where, where does that come from? Because we all agreed, because you didn't leave, thankfully, maybe because you just didn't want to get up. You were just thought, well, just, it's convenient to sit here. But we didn't leave because we all agree that we sometimes struggle with being quarrelsome. So what's, what's the root of that? What, what causes that? What, what's the source of that? Well, I want us to look at another passage of Scripture in the New Testament to help us with that. Look what it says here in, in James 4.1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So we see here that the source of our, or cause of our quarrels is our passions, or it's another word for desires, strong desires that wage war in us. That's the cause, that's the source of quarrels. Passions or desires that wage war within us. So what's, what's going on? What's, what's this war look like? Well, the war going on within us is a war between the unredeemed flesh, that, that, all right, and the new creation. So here's what happened. When you placed your faith in Jesus Christ, he gave you a new heart. You don't have an old heart anymore. You have a new heart. Isn't that good news? That's great news to me. We have a new heart. It says the, the old has passed away. It says that the old man was crucified, Romans 6, 6, with Christ. The old man is done away with. But here's what happened. When we were the old man and the old man was taken out, the old man left shrapnel everywhere in us. I mean, there's old pattern, pattern habits, the things, how we respond to things. That's still there. All right, so that's what we call the unredeemed flesh. It hasn't been rescued completely. That will happen when we meet the Lord, all right? But we have this new heart. We have this new spirit. We have the Holy Spirit who lives in us. We've been made new creations, and there's this battle between the unredeemed flesh and the new man, the new creation, and this battle is going on. As followers of Jesus, the Spirit of God residing in us is prompting us to practice righteousness, to, to, to specifically here in this context, peace and harmony with other people. And, and while the flesh is prompting us to pr practice unrighteousness, quarrels, and fights with others, and when we give in to the desires of the flesh, the consequences are painful and destructive. You ever been there? You ever given into the, the desires of the flesh and seen the consequences? Are, they're painful and they're destructive. Well, we see these consequences beginning in James 4, 2. Look what it says. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Now, notice the progression in verse 2, all right? Desire leads to actions, and this leads to negative consequences. Now, they say a picture is worth a 1,000 words. Anybody agree with that? Maybe more than a 1,000 words right now, all right? So I'm going to give you a picture. Oops. What did my... Uh-oh. This didn't save. Yep, that's, okay, I'm sorry about that. Um, now I'm going to have to draw a picture up here. I don't know what, I mean, it was all there. It's not there now. So, 
I wish I could hold up my, 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 my pad to, you, to show you, all right? So he, here's the picture. So if you look at the bottom of this picture, it's a heart, okay? And in that is the word desire, okay? And above that, there's an arrow pointing up, and there's pencil, this, this picture of actions, all right? Then another arrow, and then consequences. So desires lead to actions which lead to consequences. In fact, I'll just go back to James 4, 2. Can you see this? The desire, right? right it leads to what's, what's, the, what's the action? Murder or, uh, cov- or you can't obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So covet is another desire which leads to fighting and quarreling, right? So you have this desire leads to actions, leads to consequences. And, and God teaches us that our greatest desire should be to bring God glory in all things, that, that should be our greatest desire, is to bring him glory in all things. So the, the, the next picture then is, is this, is, is the heart has glorified God on it, right? And then the actions are obedient actions in speech, which leads to joy, which leads to fulfillment, which leads to peace. But that's our greatest desire is to glorify God in all things, I've shared this in our life group before, but I think it's a great illustration. I'll keep bringing it back up. And um, when your greatest desire is something beside to glorify God, it's a mess. It just is a mess. It's just wrong. It leads to sin, which leads to pain. So it doesn't. It leads to quarreling, right? Um, which leads to pain. So this has been many years ago, um, but uh, my. my my wife and I, since we've been married, my job is to turn off the lights. And uh, I, when we first got married, we came home from our honeymoon, and I laid down in bed, and she said, or, or not to turn off the lights, but to lock the doors, thank you. Uh, to lock the doors, uh, not to turn off the lights. Uh, I'm usually in bed before she gets there. So, but to, to, to lock the doors, and uh, she said, well, the door's locked. We had like two doors in our little town, townhouse, two-bedroom townhouse, and I said, well, no, I don't, I, I don't know. I never thought about checking the doors before. And she said, well, you, would you please go do that? I said, okay. I got up and I locked the doors. And from that point on, lock the doors. That's my job, right? I'm the door locker. All right. I don't, not good for much else, but I'm the door locker. So the door locker, and this is, this has probably been 10, 12 years ago, maybe longer than that. And, but God's never let me forget it, thankfully. And one night, just a long, long one of those weeks, it felt like, you know, every day was 48 hours. And finally, I was going to get in bed, like, at a decent hour for the first time that week. And I slide in the covers. And, man, I'm just taking that deep breath. And just, you just know you're getting ready to go to sleep. And she comes in. She said, hey, did you check the doors? And being the loving husband that I always am, I said, well, you're up. Why don't you check them? So, um, and she went in, her head went down, I'm sure there was tears on her cheek, and she went into the bathroom and shut the door, didn't slam it, Um, uh, she responded a lot better than I did, and immediately, and it didn't always happen to me, it's just the Holy Spirit convicted me, what is on the throne of your heart? My greatest desire was rest, and rest isn't wrong, but my greatest desire was rest over glorifying God in the situation, and I hurt my wife. Happens every time. When the desire, our greatest desire is not to glorify God in every situation, it leads to wrong actions that lead to negative consequences. So what's the remedy for quarreling then? What is the remedy for quarreling? Because we're looking at this, this aspect of quarreling. That's, that's the sin that we see here, but there's something underneath that, isn't there? 
Quarreling is just evidence that something else is going on wrong. All right, what's going wrong? Well, it st- first starts, if we're going to find the remedy for quarreling, it starts that we've got, we've got to recognize the greatest desire on our heart. What's the greatest desire on our heart at a time? If it's to be right, to intimidate others, to prove how smart we are, then we'll most likely be quarrelsome. We'll be quarrelsome. And the consequences will be broken relationship, pain, and isolation. That's the consequences of being quarreling because the desire of our heart is not to glorify God. Well, our greatest desire needs to be glorify God in every situation. So how do we get there? How do we get there? Well, I would say to look with me up here at, at James 4, 6, but it's not there. All right, so we're not going to look at James 4, 6, but here's what it says in this whole passage. But God gives more grace. But God gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God gives more grace. God gives more grace. For stinky attitudes, God gives more grace. For selfishness, God gives more grace. For lying, God gives more grace. For quarreling, God gives more grace. Isn't that good news? That's great news. And he gives grace, all right? He opposes the proud, he gives grace to the humble. Guys, grace is not just unmerited favor. If I ask a question and define, somebody define grace, most of you give that answer, and I would too. But it goes well beyond that. Well beyond. That's good news that it's unmerited faith. We get something we don't deserve. That's grace. Now listen to this. Grace is more than that. 1 Corinthians 15 says this. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored more than all of them. But not I. But the grace of God in me. Say it again. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. He said, I'm, Paul said, I'm a Christian. I'm a new creation by God's grace. That's an unmerited favor. That's, that's getting something you don't deserve. He's a Christian, a new creation. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace, hear it again, the word grace, did not prove vain. It wasn't useless. It didn't stop there. But I labored more than, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God in me. You see, grace is also the desire and power to do God's will. That's great news, because I need God's grace every day. I need the right desire and the power to do God's will. And when I have the right desire to do God's will and the power, then the consequences are positive. They're wonderful, they're joy, they're fulfillment. They're a blessing to others. I'm not quarrelsome. And as we consistently humble ourselves before him, God will give us the power and desire to glorify him. And this will lead to not being quarrelsome, but instead being peaceable, which is what? A fruit of the Spirit from Galatians 5. Fruit of the Spirit is this, love, joy, peace. Peaceable, not quarrelsome from the fruit of the Spirit. Well, let's now turn our attention to the second qualification in verse 3 we were examined this morning. So I'm going to go back. I'm going to, I'm going to go back like this and do this. So the next one here, it's not highlighted, but it's not a lover of money. Not a lover of money. Or some translations say not greedy. It is making the acquisition of money your greatest love or desire. Let me say it again. Making the acquisition of money your greatest love or desire. An elder can't be motivated by money, and neither can any follower of Jesus. 
If we're motivated by money, there's a problem, and there's going to be a problem. Timothy highlights the dangers of this when he writes in 1 Timothy 6.10. You've probably heard this. You've probably heard it misquoted, but he, he writes this. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. Now, somebody, some people have quoted this. For money is the root of all sorts of evil. Is that what it says? No, for the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. So here under the qualifications for elders, and we're also going to see it for deacons, he says they can't be a lover of money. And then later on he says, he explains that in, in, in chapter 6, because the, the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. See, the false teachers in Ephesus were lovers of money. They taught with this motivation to get money. They were just slick orators. They had really nothing to say except what was wrong, and they did it out of the motivation for people to pay them. That was their only motivation. Uh, for those who teach God's word in the church elders, this can never be the motivation. can never be the motivation. Because once it is, this, a couple of different things will happen. They will, at a passage of scripture, and it's a difficult passage, and it might offend somebody, and you just slide right over it. Because you don't offend anybody because they might not give. That's what an elder who is motivated by money would do. Or they'll, they'll do everything they can in their power outside of the teaching time to cozy up with people that, who have money. And maybe, and I hope not, you've been around people like that. And that cannot be an elder. Jesus also pointed out the danger of being a lover of money when he, he said this in Luke 16. He said, no servant can to serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. You can't have two masters. You can't say, God, I love you more than anything, and turn around and say, money, I love you more than anything. You can't. You've got to have one master, and it's be the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, now listen to this warning that's given in Hebrews 13.5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I forsake you. Now notice the promise at the end. He promises never to deserve, desert or leave or forsake us. That, that's a promise that we're given. He will never desert us. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. We become lovers of money when we don't trust God to keep his promises. He promised he will never leave us or forsake us. And we become lovers of money when we don't trust God at his promise. When is it that God will leave us or forsake us? He says he will never, never. And when we pursue money and make that our greatest desire, our greatest goal, we're saying, God, we don't trust you. You won't keep your word. This harkens back to like Genesis 3 when the enemy tempted Adam and Eve and questioned God's goodness and questioned God's word. And that's exactly what happens when we become lovers of money. We're questioning that he'll uh, not come through in his word. Well, well, the second phrase there in Hebrews 13, 5 says this, being content with what you have. Don't be lovers of money, but be content with what you have. The opposite of being a lover of money is being content. So what does it mean to be content and how do we get there? Well, I love what Alistair Begg says. He's a pastor in Ohio. says about being content. To be content is bowing my heart and mind to the will of God no matter the conditions I face. Let me say that again. To be content is bowing my heart and my mind to the will of God no matter the conditions I face. Are you content? 
Am I content? Do we bow our heart and mind to the will of God no matter the conditions we face? We just sang Honey to the Rock. I mentioned that last time. It's a psalm, come from a psalm. And there's this song, You are all that I need. You are all that I need. Can, can we say that with conviction? Do we really believe that he's all we need? Do we really believe that? Well, our actions will show that. If we are lovers of money, it shows that we really don't believe that he's all that we need. You know, God, I do need you, but I need a little more of this too. We don't trust him. Do you trust God's provision and plan for your life? Well, to help us explore the contentment just a little bit deeper, I want us to, to look at Philippians 4. If you've got your Bible, you have to turn to it because I don't not know what happened to this. And th- you know what? This is, uh, this is why I bring my Bible up here every time because I don't trust technology. I mean, I saved I went through it a couple times and everything like that, and somehow I pushed the wrong button and it didn't work. So, but if you've got your Bibles, turn to Philippians 4, 11 through 13. I want us to look at that together. If not, please trust me, and you can ask somebody else to go home and be a Berean and look at it later that I didn't lie to you. All right, so remembering here as we look at Philippians 4, 11 through 13, um, we're exploring what it means to be content and how to get there so we can resist the temptation of being lovers of money. And, and the first thing, let's look there at Philippians uh, 4, 11 through 13. It's a pretty famous passage, especially uh, the last verse. I'm just going to read those verses for us. It says, not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or translation may I say this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Anybody heard that verse before? Probably everybody in here, we've heard that verse. Um, well, what does this passage mean? Well, the first thing we see in this passage is contentment is learned. Contentment is learned. If you notice in verse 11, it says, for I have learned to be content. And then in verse 12, he says, I've learned the secret of being content. He had learned, Paul had learned to trust the providence of God, the practical provision of God for his people. The key thing I want us to see here is that contentment is learned. It's not something we're born with or we, we get in a certain moment. Growing in contentment is a process. This is why Paul says he had learned it. So how do you think Paul learned contentment? We can go to tons of other passages in, in the New Testament. He alludes to those passages here in the rest of our passage of, in verse 11. He says this, For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means and also how to live in prosperity. And you go to Corinthians, you see he was beaten. He was left for dead. He was shipwrecked. Humble means he didn't have much. And yet he met this, this lady in, in Acts 16 called Lydia, and he was taken to her house, and she had a bunch of money. He had, like, clean sheets, lots of food. He and his companions, she, she put them up. She was a, became a believer in Jesus Christ, so he, he, he learned how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, so being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. Paul learned to be content in both areas, pain and plenty. He had learned to be satisfied with where God had him. It was a process. And if we're going to be content, it will be learned. It will be a process in our life as well. Notice again how Paul expounds on the different circumstances in which he had found himself. If you put in one column over on the right, humble means, going hungry, suffering need. If you put another column over here, living prosperity, being filled, having abundance. And he sums it up with this. 
in any and every circumstance. I have learned to be content. So we see that being content, it's a learned thing. We, we have to grow in this. The second thing concerning contentment we see in this passage is contentment is independent from circumstances. Circumstances do not dictate whether we're content or not. Paul says as in circumstances did not dictate him. Uh, he says humble means content, prosperity content, going hungry content, filled content, suffering need content, abundance content. Paul's contentment being satisfied with where God had him and in God's provision was not based on what was going on around him. And if we're going to be content, then it will be independent from our circumstances. Contentment is being, again, satisfied where God has us regardless of what the circumstances are. I have a great friend of mine who says this, and it goes along with this. Every time somebody says, hey, have a great day, all right, and he'll say, it's a choice. Isn't that true? Isn't it a choice to have a great day? It is. No matter what the circumstances are, we can still have a great day. I, I love that. It really throws people off when you do that, too. I like doing it just to see the reaction. But it's true. Uh, how could Paul get to the place of being able to say that he was content, independent from his circumstances? And, and how can we get to this place where we can say that we are truly content, independent from anything that's going on around us? Paul says he had learned the secret of being content. What's the secret? What's the secret of being content? Thankfully, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He knew that I would be reading this one day, and I would need it to be really laid out for me. All right? Look what it says in verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We see here this third truth concerning contentment in this passage. Contentment is dependent on Christ. He could be content in any circumstances because his worth and power were found in Christ, in Christ alone. That's why he could be content. Notice the words all things or everything, depending on your translation. What, what all things or everything? I can, I, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's the context? What is the context? Well, it says prosperity, being filled, going hungry, having abundance, suffering. That's the all things he's talking about. I can be content in any of those, no matter what my circumstances are. Name it. And I can be content. Paul was able to be satisfied where God had him by the power of Christ in him. I can be content. I can do all things. What can I do? I can be content in every circumstance through him who strengthens me. He depended on Christ's strength and he trusted God's will. He could be satisfied where he had, whether he had little or a difficult place by the power of Christ in him. He could be satisfied when he had plenty or when, when he had little, and when he had much. Why? By the power of Christ in him. I realize that this is one of the most popular verses in culture today. And my, most of us know it. It's like John 3.16, Philippians 4.13. You go to the football game, psh, there they are, plastered everywhere. Right? Um, and you often hear people quote this and concerning having the power to accomplish a certain task or goal. Now, I'm going to ruin this verse for a bunch of you. I promise you that. But that's okay. I want to make it better than, it really, than you think it is. It's way better than this. You know, I'm at a free throw line, all right? I'm at the free throw. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things, all right? All right. Did you or not? Here's how you find out. What if you miss it for the national championship? Can you do all things through Christ who strengthens you now? Because that's what I was talking about. You just lost the game. Can you be content through Christ who strengthens me? Or if you make it, can you be content there 
as you try to handle all the praise that will come to you and be humble? Can you be content where God has you? Yes, it does in a sense. Yes, it is. We, we, We can go to Acts. We live and move and have our being in Christ. Everything that we do is given us strength, but that's not what this passage is talking about at all. Please don't quote it that way. No doubt if God gives us a strength to do these things. But Paul is not saying he can do anything if he sets his mind to it. That's not what this passage talks about at all. I, had, I was about four years ago, I was at a conference out in Colorado for FCA. We were doing some training, and in the morning I was up and I was working out in the, in the weight room there. And I, I don't know what I was doing. I think I was doing like tricep push downs or something like that. And I was struggling the last rep, and I just didn't get them all. And this guy goes, Man, get back on there. Just quote, I can do all things you try to strengthen me. You can do it. What? You get over here and do it. I mean, that's not what he's talking about at all. Now, I, would, I wasn't going to get violent on him because I'm an elder. I can't get violent, okay? Um, but that's not what he's talking about at all. And I'm thinking, okay, you get over here. Let's put about 600 pounds on the bar and let me just drop it off at you. And this, you just start quoting it because you'll be fine. Now, we laugh, but how many times have we quoted this passage, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me? It's, that's not what it's talking about. I can be content no matter what God has me because Christ will give me the strength to do it. That's what it's talking about. Isn't that a lot better? Didn't Philippians 4.13 make a lot more sense and a lot better, a lot more powerful than that? Philippians 4.13 says this, By Christ's strength, I can be calm in adversity and humble in prosperity. Christ gives us the power to bow our hearts and minds to the will of God no matter our circumstances, whether I make or miss the free throw, whether I lose or win the game, whether my relationships are whether I want them to be, whether I get a promotion or not, whether I meet my weight loss goal or not, whether gas prices are high or low, whether the stock market is up or down. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can be content. I can be content trusting in God's will because Christ will give me the strength to do so. And when I'm content, let's go back to this, by his strength, then I will not be a lover of money. Think about that. If I'm content with him and him alone, I won't be a lover of money. I won't pursue money because I trust him in his promises. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me so I don't need to pursue money. Now, God doesn't hate money. He doesn't hate wealth. It doesn't say that anywhere. He uses wealth for his good, but he sure hates it when we pursue it in place of him. That's a lover of money. And when we are content, we'll also be generous with the things that he's given us to steward. That's another telltale sign. If we're being content, all right, and not lovers of money, we're givers, joyful givers. I mean, that, that's a whole other message. All right? we, don't, we don't have time unless you've got a few hours here. I'm kidding. But we don't have time for that. But it is, that's an evidence that we are not lovers of money, that we are content. And God gives us the strength to trust him and be where he wants us to be. Well, how will we respond to God's word this morning? Well, first, I would encourage all of us to seek his grace to empower us to make the greatest desire to glorify him and to empower us to be content with his plan and provision for our lives. This will free us from being quarrelsome and being lovers of money. Pursue him. Seek his grace, the desire and power to do God's will every day. It says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. He gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. If we come to him humbly and say, God, I need your grace today. I've got a situation going on that that could be quarrelsome. I don't want to be there. I want to be peaceable. I want to bring peace to the situation. Lord, I'm struggling with the desire to have this, this, and this over you. And nothing wrong with this, this, and this. But I don't want it to be more important than you, God. I don't want to be your lover of money. Would you help me change the desire of my heart to say this, God, I want to glorify you in every circumstance.
in every circumstance. And when we do this, then we'll be people who bring peace and are generous. Well, all of this, I, I just got to ask this question. Do you know Jesus? Are you in Christ? Because if not, none of this probably makes sense. And the promises aren't to you. But I want those promises to be to you, that you can be peaceable, you can be generous. Well, the Bible tells us, as we alluded to earlier in Genesis, that God creates mankind to bring him glory. He said, I've created you to bring me glory, to make much of me. And at the beginning, Adam and Eve do that. And then they decide, you know, we've got a better plan, God. So we think we'll make much of us, and we're going to go this way. So the God of all the years, the holy, perfect creator God, who loves us, but it's also just, he sends them out of the garden. And there's a separation between God and man. It's not what God had intended, because they decided we're going to glorify ourselves. We're going to seek our own way and not you, God. So God calls us to glorify us. Yet we choose, it says this, all have sinned and fall short of what? The glory of God. And it says the wages of sin, the payment, what we deserve for our sin is death, eternal separation from God forever. Yes, physical death, but also spiritual death, eternal separation. That's what we deserve. That's what we've earned, our wages. But I love this, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, by his grace he sent Jesus to pay the penalty of our sin, to, to, to pay our wages, to pay our debt for us so we could be forgiven, we could be made right, we could be given a new heart, the Holy Spirit could dwell in us. That's what we call this the gospel. It means good news. Isn't that good news? That God would do that, send his son, the perfect holy son of God to come and take what we deserve on our behalf so that we could be forgiven. We could be declared right because of his actions, not ours. And the Bible says that we can't do anything to earn this. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. It's not our own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of work, so no one can boast. So we can say, well, God, you're so lucky to have me here. I really worked real hard. No way. He made it so we don't get any glory. He gets it all. And then we get all of him. And we get salvation. We get forgiveness. We get the promise of him. Good news. And the Bible tells us we want to respond to that good news. We do this. Two words, repentance and faith. We turn from trusting in ourselves. We turn in deceitful, turn from the deceitfulness of sin, and we turn and we trust alone in God's provision for our sin. And that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, I, I, I want you to be in Christ. I want you to know Jesus. You can do that this morning. Turn from just cry out to God. God, I want to know you. Please. I don't want to run after my way anymore. I don't want to trust in me. I want to trust in Jesus. I put my trust in Jesus. If you haven't done that, please do that this morning. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, for the truthfulness of your word. Thank you for the hope that we have. Lord, we all struggle with being quarrelsome sometimes and, and pursuing money over you, being lovers of money. We all do. But, Lord, we have hope. We have you. We have your spirit residing in us. And, Lord, we have your grace. Lord, your grace is sufficient. Your grace is all we need to give us the desire and power to overcome quarrelsomeness and being lovers of money, instead of being people who are people of peace and people who are generous and content with you alone. 
Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would stand with me, we're going to close with another benediction from the New Testament this morning. Um, from 2, Corinthians, uh, 2, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 3.16 says this, Now may the Lord of peace himself continually grant you peace in every circumstance. The Lord be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.